Normally, uh, a sermon starts with a, a funny story, something to engage the congregation with. And we, we usually call this our, our hook when we're prepping our sermons together. And I'm going to be honest, I don't have a hook this morning. Um, I don't have a funny story to share. I don't have a child old enough to ride a hoverboard behind me. So that gag is out as well. Um, but really, uh, I don't ha- think I need a hook today because part of writing a sermon is knowing your audience. And the truth is, is that um, you're all here on the, Christmas, the Sunday after Christmas. And basically, most people don't come to church on the Sunday after Christmas. There could have been a whole host of things you cho- could have chosen to do and most people choose to do other than come to church on the Sunday after Christmas. You could have been at home with everyone else enjoying week 17 of the NFL. You could have been... Like so many of the other people who came on Christmas Eve and checked off the church box for the month of December and figure they're good until January. You could have been like the people who have said, my New Year's resolution is I'm going to go to church every week. So this week I need to take off because that sounds terrible, right? And there's countless things you could have chosen to do this morning rather than be here at church. And most people do choose to do anything other than church today. But you're here. And I'm really excited about this because it means that I get to talk about things a little bit differently. I get to rid myself of the pretenses of sermon writing. I get to unshackle myself of the burden of the the three-point sermon with the nice rhyming points that maybe are alliterated if I worked really hard on it. Um, I get to talk plainly and talk freely about what it means for us to prepare the way for Jesus this morning. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what it means to prepare the way for Jesus. And this week we're coming out of a season of Advent. And Advent simply comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. And I I added that note in there because I took Latin in college and I feel like I have to use it at any opportunity I get, okay? You don't get a ton of chances to use Latin. I don't know if you know that or not, but... um, Advent is a season where we've been patiently awaiting the arrival of our Savior, where we've been waiting for the birth of our King. And for us, that's usually the point where our focus on Christmas and on Advent ends. It ends with the birth of Jesus, baby Jesus, in the manger. And and some churches might go on this week and talk about the events that followed the birth of Jesus, like Mary and Joseph's flight into Egypt, or or the story of the Magi, or or Jesus being presented at the temple. And we're not going to talk about those things this morning. But we're not done with Advent. In fact, today we're going to talk about Advent just a little bit differently. Because we're, we're still people who are waiting the arrival of our Savior. We're waiting for the return of our Savior, waiting for his advent again. Now, before you get all excited about about talking about the Left Behind series or apocalyptic numerology or whatever it is that you think about the apocalypse, I want to note, we're not going to talk about any of that. Um, There's going to be no marks, no signs. I'm not going to have a a big whiteboard with like red yarn across it talking about the different signs in the world. But what we are going to talk about is the message of the man who God sent to repair the way for Jesus 2,000 years ago. And so let's look at the message of John the Baptist in Mark 1, which Renaud just read, and I'm going to read again. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. 
I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John had the task of preparing the way for the Lord to make straight paths for him in the desert. And John took up that task and he challenged the status quo of first century society in Israel. And maybe the most obvious way that John challenged the status quo was that he challenged the status quo of the first century fashion world, right? uh, Mark notes that John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt and he ate locusts and wild honey. And Mark includes these details for a reason, Because they're weird, okay? This is weird. He wants to note that John stands out from first century society. He stands out. He's different. He's not like everyone else. He's out in the desert wearing a shirt made out of camel's hair, which sounds really terrible to me. But he's out in the desert eating locusts and wild honey, But John challenges the status quo of the first century world, not just in his fashion and dietary choices, but with his message as well. And we see this, that John was in the desert preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And at that time in Israel, nobody else was doing that. Nobody else was preaching the message that John was preaching. What we know is that in in first century Israel, when someone converted to Judaism, they would undergo a process of of ritual washing. So they they would be washed and made clean. And the whole practice was tied into this ceremonial procedure to be seen as clean under the law. It had nothing to do with repentance. It had nothing to do with uh, our allegiance to a savior. It had nothing to do with the message that John is preaching. It was focused on just the ceremonial cleansing necessary to convert to Judaism. And it was something that happened once and only ever once, the moment you converted. Outside of that, it never happened. But John takes what had been seen for hundreds of years as this ceremonial procedure And he combines it with this message, this radical message of repentance that cuts straight to the heart of the first century world. And through it, John embodied the prophecy of Isaiah, which Mark quotes here in Mark 1. And we see it in Isaiah 40, and I'm going to read it for us, the first four verses here. This is what the prophet Isaiah said. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. 
The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And John, John fulfilled this prophecy out in the desert. He called on the people who heard his message to make straight the paths of the Lord. He challenged them to raise up the valleys of their heart, to tear down the mountains of their soul, to to level out the rough ground of their being. John called on the people to prepare the way of the Lord by engaging in this radical landscaping of their heart in the process of repentance. He challenged them to come to go about changing the landscape of their heart, the landscape of the world in the process of repentance. And of course, it would have been easier for John to build an aimless winding path for the Lord, a path that wandered around the mountains and avoided the valleys, that skirted along the edges of the rough places, that left the sin and the brokenness where it was and just squeezed God in around it all. But John was called to prepare straight paths for the Lord, to level the mountains and to fill the deep ravines. And as John prepared the way for Jesus, as he made straight paths for the Lord, he engaged in an incredible prophetic ministry. Somehow in our, our, modern, our modern culture, we hear prophecy and we think future telling, right? It's a prophecy about the future in some way. We think that maybe a prophet can glean some sort of information about who we're going to marry or how many kids we're going to have or how long it's going to take for Bill to go bald or what he's going to look like when that eventually happens. But the truth is that in the Bible, what we see about prophecy is that it's actually only about between 2 and 5% about future telling, depending on who you want to ask. The vast majority, 95% of the prophetic ministry that we see in the Bible is about speaking into the way the world is at that moment. It's about speaking into the way that the world is and the people of Israel are in that moment. It's tied to a message that says, you've gone astray. Repent in turning back to the way of the Lord. And John's message fits perfectly within that definition of prophetic ministry. It isn't future-oriented, but his message was clear. Repent and make a straight path for the Lord. Fill in the valleys of your heart and tear down the mountains of the world and make a path for the Lord. And this morning, what I hope we hear from John's message is that preparing the way means challenging the status quo. Preparing the way means challenging the status quo. If we're going to be people of repentance, people who are called to repent, then we're going to have to challenge the status quo of our hearts. We're going to have to challenge the status quo of the world around us. If we're going to be people who repent from our sin and our indifference to the mountains of our hearts and the valleys of the world, we're going to have to be people who are willing to do the hard work of challenging the status quo. And it's going to have to come in two specific ways that I want us to see. Because it's going to come, in one hand, we're going to have to prepare the way in our hearts. We're going to have to prepare the way in our hearts. And on the other hand, we're going to have to prepare the way 
in the world. We're going to have to do both. We don't get to just do one or the other. These are two things united together that we're called to do. To repent and make straight paths for the Lord. And for us to do either of those things, to prepare the way in our hearts or to prepare the way in the world, we're going to have to start by figuring out where we're actually at first. We're going to have to do the hard work of figuring out where we're actually at. When I was, I was six, maybe, maybe seven years old, my grandma took me on a, a day trip up to Mount Baldy. And um, we went up there because we were going to go hiking, and we were going to go hiking to these waterfalls and have lunch up there. And so we got up there. We went on the hike. It was a a really easy hike to the waterfalls. We ate lunch there. It was a nice day. And then we started walking back to our car. Everything seemed normal at the time, in my my memory at least, until I realized that we'd been walking back to our car for a lot longer than it had taken us to walk to the waterfall in the first place. And so we keep going, and my grandma had this really positive mentality. Every corner we would come to on this trail, she would say, well, our car is just around the corner. And every time we would turn the corner, and there was no car there, just more trail. And we kept going on and on like this. Our car is just around the corner. Our car is just around the corner. Until finally she realized or maybe she'd realized long before and just kept it from me. Okay, we're lost. We have no idea where we are in Mount Baldy. And so she pulled out her, her little flip phone at the time, and she called the park rangers, which was thoroughly embarrassing for me, by the way. That was like, I, I'm still scarred from this experience. But she called the park rangers, and she starts explaining to them, yeah, she says, we're on Big Bear Mountain, um, we're, we're, we went to these waterfalls and I'm starting to think, we're not on Big Bear. We're on Mount Baldy. Like, this is not right. So I'm trying to interrupt her. She's trying to talk to the park rangers. Finally, I get it across. We're not on Big Bear. We're on Mount Baldy. And she corrects it. And I kid you not, five minutes go by and then a truck pulls up behind us. Five minutes. I mean, we must, have been, we must not have been walking fast at all. Because this truck pulls up behind us, and the park ranger lets us get in, and he drives us back. And he explains, we'd simply, the, at the waterfall, there's a fork, and we just walked the wrong direction. And because of the fact that we hadn't really accurately figured out where we were at first, we thought we'd had a solution that was to just press on. Just keep pushing around the next corner and the next corner and the next corner and the next corner. And because of it, we almost ticked off a search and rescue mission on on the wrong mountain. (laughs) But too often when we think about for ourselves about preparing the way for the Lord, either in our hearts or in the world, we don't do the legwork of actually figuring out where we're at first of assessing accurately where we're at. We just jump straight into the process of repenting, of turning back, or what we think is turning back. And so we wander off in the wrong direction, thinking that the life that we've been called to is just around the next corner, just around the next corner, just around the next corner, until we've wandered off into something that's totally off course. And today I want us to take the time to figure out where we are at before we start the work of preparing the way for the Lord. And so with that in mind, 
I want us to start with focusing on preparing the way in our hearts. And it isn't easy to assess honestly and accurately the condition of our hearts. In fact, it is very hard to assess the condition of our hearts. We become indifferent to the mountains and the valleys of our hearts, to the sin and the obstacles in our hearts that block the way of the Lord within us. We start to lose sight of them. They start to blend in with everything else. And now I could, I could stand up here and I could run through a, a vice list of all the types of sin that is likely to fill our lives. All the sorts of obstacles that get in the way, all the mountains of our heart and all the valleys of our soul that block the way of the Lord in our lives. But if I did that, I would be up here, I would spend the rest of my sermon doing that. And honestly, even if I did, I would still miss things that are blocking the way of the Lord in each of our lives. I would miss things that are an obstacle to the path of the straight path of the Lord in our lives. And so what I want to do is maybe a little bit different. But I want you to close your eyes for a second and picture the landscape of your heart. Picture the landscape of your heart with all the mountains, the hills, the valleys, the rough ground, the flat ground, all of it. And then picture the straight paths of the Lord, or, or what should be straight paths. But if we're being honest, they sort of wind around the mountains and the valleys and all the other obstacles. Curves around the geography a bit. And I want you to imagine yourself walking along that path. And as you walk, look at the places the path winds around. Look at the mountains that your path kind of swings by, the valleys that the path avoids, the rough areas that the path skirts around the edges of. And then I want you to take a moment to imagine that written on those hills and those mountains and those valleys are the obstacles of your heart the obstacles in your life that make the path of the Lord a winding path, an aimless path. And with those in mind, you can go ahead and open your eyes if you haven't already. With those in mind, I want to ask you to hear this morning the message of John the Baptist to repent, to turn back and make a straight path for the Lord. To turn back to repent to take those things, those obstacles, those mountains, those hills, those valleys, those rough places, and say to God, Lord, I need you to help me do the work of landscaping my heart. I need you to help me do the work of tearing down these mountains in my heart and filling in these valleys in my soul. I need you, Lord, to do this work with me, to give those things over to Christ. And in the midst of all of it, remember this too, that we shouldn't do this work alone. We shouldn't do the work alone. Even today, with those mountains and the valleys 
say to someone, reach out to someone and say, hey, I have a hill in my life that's blocking the way of the Lord. I have an obstacle in my life that's blocking the path of the Lord. I need, I need your help. Can you be praying for me with this? Can you help me with this? And together begin the hard work of tearing up the landscape and making straight paths for the Lord. But I don't want to stop right there because I think too often the church, we get to that point where we talk about this radical transformation of the heart and we forget this other piece. We talk about preparing the way for the Lord in our own hearts but we forget about preparing the way for the Lord in the world today. And so I want us to turn to what it means for us to embark on preparing the way in the world. And as an example, um, in 1786, there was a, a young British member of the British Parliament named William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce, he took on the task of preparing the way for the Lord in the world today or in his day. Uh, Wilberforce had, had had an experience a few years earlier, a conversion experience, where he encountered the fullness of a life with God. Uh, he encountered what it meant for, for him to be a part of the life that God had called him to live. It was the moment where it all clicked for him. And I can only imagine that most of us have had a moment like that, where we finally saw with clear eyes what the life with Jesus looked like. And so Wilberforce had that moment. And because of this experience, he turned his attention to making straight paths for the Lord in the world. And so he began by surveying the landscape of the world around him. And what he started to focus on was the horrors of the slave trade. Right? The British Empire had been engaged in the slave trade for hundreds of years at this point in time. And Wilberforce and the community around him start to look at the slave trade. And, and Wilberforce says that this is becoming, and this has been, a massive mountain blocking the paths of the Lord in the world. This is a massive obstacle to the straight paths of the Lord in the world. And so Wilberforce began to go about setting his life tirelessly to bring about the end of this practice. Just over 20 years later, in 1807, after dozens of failed attempts at putting an end to the slave trade, a bill came up in the House of Commons to do just that, and it passed by a vote of 283 to 16. 20 years Wilberforce worked on this. And the accounts say that tears streamed down Wilberforce's face as people gave speeches in support of the bill, as the votes came in and he realized that it was going to pass. And the sad truth is that the church had built crooked paths around the mountain that was slavery and the slave trade. Rather than doing the hard work of moving earth and stone to tear down the mountain of slavery... The church of the 17th and the 18th and the 19th centuries built a winding path that allowed those things to exist just on the edge of the path of the Lord. 
Rather than deal with these obstacles to the way of the Lord in the world, the church had constructed a way around it. We see that churches at this time had given out versions of the Bible to slaves that, that avoided anything that they thought might lead to be seen as encouraging emancipation. No Joseph being sold into slavery, no Exodus, no Paul saying in Christ there's no longer slave nor free. And when the church wasn't actively working towards furthering the institution of slavery, it was doing the legwork of justifying it or at least allowing it to exist. You'd often, we'd often hear people talk about how the church shouldn't be concerned with political issues like slavery because in many ways, the church had accepted the status quo of the world around it. It had accepted the status quo, which was the crooked path that left the mountain of slavery and the slave trade in the world. And it took a voice like that of Wilberforce to challenge the status quo and to prepare a straight path for the Lord in the world to break down the mountain of the slave trade and to give the world a glimpse of the body of Christ in action. And our, our church can trace its history back to the, the, this very movement, maybe not to Wilberforce directly, who, who was in the United Kingdom, but to the movement for abolition. In 1845, I'm sorry, there's a little bit, I like history, I'm really sorry. Um, in 1845, the Triennial Baptist Convention had, was brought together, and it was a group of Baptist churches um, in the United States. And the Triennial Baptist Convention was the forefather of what would become known as the American Baptist Convention, which, for, for those of you who don't know, was our founding denomination as a church, where we started, where our roots come from. And the Triennial Baptist Convention in 1845 decided it was no longer going to stand for slavery. It was no longer going to stand and allow the mountain of slavery to force the crooked, to force the path of the Lord to wind around the mountain. It was going to begin the work of tearing down that mountain. They said no more to the winding and aimless paths that allowed the mountain of slavery to block the way of the Lord. And it led to conflict, it led to turmoil, it led to, to divisions in the church, in the convention. And I share this today not, not because I want to bring our, our Baptist roots to the forefront or, or because I want to rile up distinctions between Northern and Southern Baptists, but because I think somehow we've come to believe that our tradition has always said that what we need to focus on is preparing the way in our hearts rather than preparing the way in the world. We often look at what people call the mainline denominations. Or sometimes you'll hear people say the liberal denominations. And we say they're more worried about social justice than they're worried about the gospel. We've got it right because we care about personal transformation of the heart but what we forget 
is that we ignore that our very existence as a church is tied to a radical call to transform the world. That we are tied to this radical movement to move the mountains of the world, to tear them down and make a straight path for the Lord in the world today. To tear down the mountain of slavery in the world around them. And it is a shame to me. It is a shame to me that we as the evangelical church have abandoned the task of tearing down the mountains in the world. It is a shame that we have abandoned the task of tearing down the mountains in the world when our roots are dug so deeply into that very activity. Into preparing the way for the Lord in the world. I don't think there's one of us who would look at the world today, who would, who would pull out your phone and look at the news app, or, or if you still get a newspaper, would look at a newspaper and go, yeah, that's how the world's supposed to be. Everything looks great right now. There are mountains and valleys all around us in the world. And we've abdicated our responsibility to do the work of tearing them down. Of filling in the valleys. And in many cases, we've gone a step further than just abdicating the responsibility. And we've even joined in the process of justifying them or trying to lay the winding road for the Lord, which neatly avoids each of those little mountains, each of those hills and each of those valleys. Rather than being the voice in the wilderness that tears down the mountain of nationalism or the valley of consumerism or the rough ground of injustice and inequality, we draw the path around each of those things and choose rather, we say, we just won't talk about it. Somehow, we embrace a gospel that is equally for all people, both Jew and Gentile, but we support a message that says, me and my own first. Somehow, we follow a savior who says, you cannot serve both God and money, but our advice or our choices about what college our kids should go to Uh, What major, what they should take, what they should study, what jobs they should take or we should take, whether we should contribute to our 401k or tithe, they're all centered around how much money we can have. Somehow we say with our mouths that the gospel is good news for the poor and the oppressed, but when we see stories about poverty and inequality, we say God helps those who help themselves. And if you'll allow me this morning to be a voice in the wilderness, it's time for the evangelical church to return to its roots of tearing down the mountains in this world. It is time for the church to take seriously the message of John and repent and begin the work of making a straight path for the Lord in the world today. It is time for the church to prepare the way for Jesus in our world. We've been called to challenge the status quo, to prepare the way for Jesus both in our hearts and in the world. 
And that means that we're going to have to be committed to both the radical transformation of the heart that comes from a personal relationship with Jesus and the radical transformation of the world that comes from God's people being his hand and feet here on earth. We cannot separate the two of them. There's a 19th century Christian scholar said this of his time. And I think it's relevant again today as well. He said, We have so persistently dissembled the power of the gospel that it is pardonable if those who judge of it by us should doubt whether it is anything more efficacious and inspiring than the pathetic guesses which adorn the writings of philosophy. Right? He's saying that it is, we have so persistently taken the power out of the gospel. We have so persistently split these two things apart. We've said that the gospel is just about transformation of the heart or it's just about transformation of the world. That it, it makes sense. It's forgivable that people have started to look for good news somewhere else. When we focus on either preparing the way in our hearts or preparing the way in the world, we only, and only one or the other, we make the gospel weak. And it should come as no surprise to us that people choose to go somewhere else to look for the good news because of it. We've let our young people especially believe that they can find better news in other places, that they can find a better hope in something else than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have to think that at least in part, it is because we've made it so weak that it no longer looks like good news. Every great movement of the church throughout history has been committed to both the radical transformation of the heart, preparing the way for the Lord in our hearts, and the radical transformation of the world that comes from preparing the way for the Lord in the world. Because Jesus was committed to both. So we must be committed to both as well. And so this morning, maybe you're feeling the burden of obstacles and sin as you look at the landscape of your own heart. Obstacles that are blocking the path of the Lord in your own heart. And I want to encourage you right now to give that over to Jesus. To take seriously the message of John to repent, to change your course. And to ask Jesus to come help you tear down the mountains and, the, and fill in the valleys of your heart. And maybe this morning you're feeling the burden, the obstacles, and the brokenness of the world around you. And I want to encourage you right now to consider... What would it mean for you to come alongside Jesus in the work of moving earth and stone to tear down the mountains in the world today? To fill in the valleys of the world around us. To be the hands and feet of Jesus here on earth.
How is Jesus calling you to prepare the way? This morning, how is Jesus calling you to prepare the way for the Lord? Let's take a moment to reflect on that.